0: We are uh, on the home stretch in our series in numbers, and uh, that means that I think it's uh, it's good since we're in the home stretch to take a chance to reflect on where we're at in the narrative. Um, for those of you who have to deal with me making Warriors references all the time, I'm telling you this is the only one for today, so you're, you're good. Uh, but we will talk about, um, uh, in the book of Numbers, we're actually in one of the two areas where there are actually a lot of numbers. So uh, we're going to have to address what those numbers mean, uh, what they meant for them, and what, uh, what they could mean for us today. So in uh, trying to understand our place in the book of Numbers right now, Where we are is that um, you'll recall that at the beginning of the book, the Israelites are in Mount Sinai. Israel had just escaped from slavery in Egypt, escaped from Pharaoh. God had delivered them. He had established a covenant with Israel. It was the birth of Israel uh, in that sense. And then at the outset, at this time in Sinai, uh, Israel did a census. They took stock of how many of them they had and from which clans. Um, and that was, that was the beginning. Then they began their journey to the promised land itself. They entered the wilderness of Paran, which is the, where it, that's the wilderness that we refer to when we talk about uh, their, their beginning of wandering in the wilderness, because it was during that time that Israel commissioned 12 spies to go into the promised land to see what was going on and see what the current inhabitants were up to, and only two of those uh, 12 spies came back with a report that um, relied on the faithfulness of God to believe that, they, uh, that Israel actually had what it took to be able to occupy that territory. The other 10 uh, spies that came back with a negative report were doubters, and they were ultimately able to sow enough uh, discord and doubt in the community that it prevented that community from moving forward to actually enter the promised land. And it was that time that God told them that the entire generation that was present during that discord um, would perish without seeing the promised land itself. Um, So that generation dies in the wilderness, except for the two spies that uh, came back with a good report, Joshua and Caleb. So Israel, when they ultimately are able to continue traveling again, Uh, On their travel, they encounter this situation where they are uh, very thirsty and being vocal about their uh, terrible conditions. And Moses, in his anger, um, uh, performs a miracle, but uh, out of arrogance rather than humility and relying on God to be able to perform that miracle uh, in terms of hitting a rock and uh, letting water flow out from it to actually quench the Israelites' thirst. And because of that, Um, God tells Moses that he too, because of his arrogance and rebellion in that place, will join that wilderness generation, will not be able to enter the promised land. So ultimately, they go through this travel and they enter the plains of Moab, which is right on the other side of the promised land across from the Jordan River. So that is where they are, on the cusp of entering the promised land. And it's at this time that they take stock again of where they are, and they do a second census. This time, again, to take stock of how things have changed, where this generation is, where this second generation stands, and it's to prepare for what it's going to take to actually be able to occupy that promised land when they can actually enter. So they traverse across this whole area, and then they can see the promised land from where they are. So what we want to talk about today is, uh, like, where we'll pick up in the narrative is with the census, the the second census that they take. We'll talk about why these numbers are the way they are, because there's a lot of them, and uh, we should get some context around them. We're also going to talk about why those numbers are there at all, um, what is the point um, from the author's perspective in sharing numbers like this, and why these numbers would matter to us today. So we'll try to, to bridge all of that together. So we'll start with the text itself. So this is how the census portion begins. On the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho, Moses and Eleazar the priest spoke with the Israelites and said, take a census census of the men, 20 years old or more, as the Lord commanded Moses. These were the Israelites who came out of Egypt. And this is how the the census uh, begins. So it starts, The descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were, through Hanuk, the Hanukite clan, through Palu, the Paluite clan, through Hezron, the Hezronite clan, through Carmi, the Carmite clan. These were the clans of Reuben. Those numbered were 43,730. The sons of Palu was Eliab. The sons of Eliab were Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. And then you realize part of the way into it, that we're dealing with census territory. This is like in Bible narratives when you have genealogies, right, of this person begat that person. Now, this is not a genealogy per se, although it does uh, account for uh, generations uh, of a particular clan. But there are actually 60 more verses of what I just started reading to you. And I, we don't have time to, to read through all of it, but I've kind of summarized it up here. This is this is what's involved in taking a census. These are the, the numbers of the tribes of Israel. I think it, it reflects how hard it is for us as modern readers to make sense of and even focus and get through some lists like these. Uh, I think it underscores how hard it is for us to like pay attention to details when we read through texts like this, because uh, we're so unfamiliar with these clans that you may not have even noticed that two of them aren't even real clans. I just threw them in there uh, because of it. That's just how it is, right? You, how, how many of us would even know? Um, here is the the actual list. They, they do uh, branch somehow um, from the, like, the original 12 tribes of Israel. Um, we are uh, going to have to think through, like, the, in this list of all of these numbers, um, what is the point? Why, why take this time, in this very exciting time in the narrative, where they can actually see the promised land? They had been at it for, for decades to get to this point. Um, why, do, why take stock and, and do this kind of uh, detailed accounting? So the first question that I want to g- actually get out of the way, so we can get to what I think are the better questions, one is just to, to deal with the obvious— which is, look at those numbers. Why are they so big? So that's, that's what we're going to have to uh, take into consideration. So if you were to add all of these numbers up, which the text itself does, uh, the text will say that in total, these, uh, these numbers add up to a little over 600,000. Um, and remember this, that's not the entire population of Israel. That's the population of men who are above 20 years old who can participate in military service. So um, a lot of scholars to, you know, taking that number and extrapolating from that um, would calculate that there's about two to three mi- million Israelites if you were using these numbers to come up with the population for, the, for Israel in the time of this wilderness. The challenge with that is, um, is trying to wrap our minds around a population that's basically as big as the city of Chicago um, to fit in a space that is so narrow, Uh, and in a context where we actually have an idea of what kind of the population sizes were like around that time for Israel's neighbors. So at this time, two to three million would have been the population of all of Egypt combined at that time, where Israel came from. Canaan's population, so in the promised land where Israel is trying to enter, their population would have only been 200,000. Um, if you 're trying to like picture what it would look like to move two to three million people across this kind of territory, this is actually for a frame of reference. This is uh, one of many photos of the um, of the Migration group coming from Central America up to uh, Mexico, uh, and the various estimates have been given about how l- how large this caravan is, um, but always the discussion is within thousands that 's what we 're talking about whereas in the case of the migrant caravan of israel we 're talking about millions. If you could imagine the the widest possible row for the caravan, like for as they march across, it would still, it would have to cover 250 miles, which from here is like most of the way to LA. That's how massive of a group we're talking if we were to have to take these numbers literally. It also presents this issue when you think of two to three million people having to settle into like spaces that they did, um, you'd have to imagine a population that was denser than that of New York City but without the technology to like build up, like upwards into the sky. It's very difficult to try to think through how to, uh, how to, how to approach these numbers when they're so large. Now, uh, I am not saying at all that God couldn't have provided for Israel through this kind of mass uh, exodus. I'm sure that he could. I believe that if God wanted to, he could have levitated Israelites into multi-level structures, even though nothing is... I believe he could have done all of that. In my opinion, he's done uh, way crazier stuff than that. That's not actually the issue. When we're trying to make sense of of these numbers, we're putting it in the context of Israel and their surrounding neighbors, and we're trying to make sense of the fact that for a group this large, in an area this uh, presumably dense, why do we not have any kind of evidence that would suggest they were actually this large um, survive over time? There are a few different solutions that have been proposed uh, over time to explain what's going on here. One is that um, the Hebrew word that was used for thousands, like in that, the list of each of uh, those families and in the total, um, that the word could technically also mean family, uh, in other contexts. So, so that then the proposal is um, the total is actually not 600,000 um, Israelite men in, in military service. It's 600 families. If that's the case, the numbers would be um, much more manageable. Um, the challenge with that, is that linguistically, just because a word can be used differently in many different contexts doesn 't mean it has to or it even makes sense and, you know in, in every single context and here it just it strains like our natural use of language to think that that, that works. Um, another solution that 's been proposed by Bible scholars who also like to dabble in math is to point out that maybe the numbering system that 's used uh, in Israel at that time is not a what we would call a base ten uh, numbering system like we all use uh, in in the world today. Maybe it was a base six numbering system, and they can put forward some evidence to suggest that maybe that 's how numbers worked back then, and maybe surrounding neighbors did that. Um, that makes sense of a lot of the numbers. It doesn't make sense of all of the numbers. And then it makes it all the more confusing as if they were using basics, like why, why does it make sense uh, some of the time and not others? Um, I think another proposal, which I think is the strongest and one that does justice to how these kinds of uh, numbers operated in their ancient context is to tolerate the possibility that the numbers are not meant to be taken literally or that we shouldn't interpret them literally today. Now, um, part of why I think this is a, uh, it's a compelling way of thinking about it is um, Israel would not be the only one in this time, in this context, to uh, gratuitously inflate uh, census numbers. Um, surrounding kings and kingdoms did the same thing. In all of those cases, it was a reflection less of the precise numbers of those communities, but of the power of that kingdom, and particularly the power of that king in providing For that group of people. I know that that's hard for us to think about because we have uh, elected officials who apparently debate the precise large size of their public campaign rallies. And um, we will go back and forth about, well, was it that big? Was it not? How many people were actually there? Understandably so. These, uh, you know, when we make claims about these things, we're doing it in a modern-day journalistic context where we evaluate whether you're speaking the truth or lying based on how you talk about numbers like this. That's not the context of how they thought of numbers back then. They would not have been aiming for this journalistic kind of integrity um, in uh, what they're they're talking about. Really, for Israel in this case, this would be large enough to reflect the greatness of God and God's ability to preserve Israel no matter how big it is. They should think of themselves as bigger— than, their surrounding, uh, than the nations surrounding them and to not be afraid. In fact, one could argue if Israel had internalized these numbers, the numbers that we just saw, if they had internalized the way of thinking of themselves as so massive compared to their surrounding nations, maybe they wouldn't have been as afraid of how big the Canaanites were and everything was in Canaan when they came back with their doubtful, um, uh, their doubtful report. Uh, apparently the, the message uh, in some ways of uh, God is big enough to handle the biggest population. It didn't get through to Israel in that process. So that's kind of a, a way to think about these numbers. So let's, let's kind of, you know, we'll, we'll put that there. And now we'll move on to what I think is the far more interesting question, which is why are there numbers at all? And I'm going to suggest to you that the numbers occur here because this is a great point in Israel's history now, to find themselves in the story. It's from these numbers that they will actually gain their sense of purpose. Now, uh, in order to appreciate how a census or charting out your generations can help you gain a sense of purpose or a sense of meaning or a sense of history, it's helpful to remember where Israel is coming from. They had been in slavery for centuries prior to being in this wilderness uh, as we are in the story right now. The consequences of slavery often are removing people from their homes and their culture, stripping them of their roots and their identity and their sense of self. When slavery is done effectively, that is the end goal so that you can fully incorporate enslaved people into your own society. Many African Americans in our country have gone through this same experience. Have you seen the joy that white people get when they do some DNA test to discover that they're like certain parts Native American, or they like uncover books that show that their great-great-grandfather was a cobbler? That is the kind of joy that comes from being able to connect yourself to something in the past. And you can use that to say, oh, my great-grandfather was a cobbler. I wonder what that says about me. Maybe I'm uh, resourceful. I'm good with my hands or something like that. Whatever people do when they discover those kinds of things. What slavery does is it takes that opportunity to learn that about yourself away. It tries to to tear you away from that place, often permanently. A lot of times, the information that we lose when people become displaced is irretrievable. This census tells Israel that no matter how many centuries they were slaves in Egypt, they are known down to their tribe, down to their clan, down to their family. They are known by the God of the universe. There is a place for them in God's land that they're preparing for. God is faithful. God is their mother and their father. God is, uh, there, uh, has all of them as children, and no oppressor will ever be able to take that away from them. Some of us have lost ties to our families uh, for a variety of reasons. For some of us, it is because of slavery. For some of us, uh, it's because of migration. For some of us, it's because we're refugees or our parents were. Some of us uh, have lost ties to our family because we chose to follow Jesus. Regardless of the way we lost our ties, what census data show for Israel in that time is that we are not lost that God is good with numbers, and God has kept track of everyone all along. That's what this census is assuring them of. A challenge that often arises in knowing who to identify with when you're trying to place yourself in the story also has to do with the fact that many of us, when we're reading these kinds of census data and trying, like we say, okay, I can see how Israel fits into the story. They, are, they were a group that's been uh, freed from slavery. This is how they get their sense of meaning. And then we would ask ourselves, in what sense would I be like them? How do I fit into the story that, that they're telling? And uh, a big challenge with that is, uh, understandably so, many of us juggle multiple Often conflicting identities, depending on which one is salient in the moment, we may identify with Israel more or less at any given time. Uh, Sparker who, uh, Lauren Chan, who's at Yale right now, actually literally she's here right now. I didn't even need to include her picture. You can just look at her right there. Wrote a great article for the for Yale recently about the challenges of a biracial identity and how um, you know navigating a world in which uh, sometimes one of those identities is more salient than the other, and ultimately the challenges of when you have both um, maybe not fully fitting in uh, in any one of those places. As readers of this text, we also have to grapple with the fact that we have many multiple identities that we bring to bear on this text as well. So um, in a lot of ways, I think we are trained, rightfully so, to immediately identify with Israel in these stories. We are people who have been freed from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to our own previous lifestyles that had us in prison, the never got us what uh, they promised to deliver. And we find our uh, faith in Jesus to be liberating. It makes us whole, and that's wonderful. In many ways, uh, identifying with Israel in this time makes so much sense in the broad sweep of God's mission. Israel right now is caught in between two lands, in, where, in between where they used to be and where their ultimate destination is. And isn't that where many of us are right now? As followers of Jesus, we know where we came from, where we're not going back to. We yearn for a world in which God's presence is known fully, and yet we're painfully aware that we are not there yet. In that sense, absolutely, we are like Israel. You should identify with them. But here's a challenge with that too. If you were born into America, it's it's harder to justify you being born into a uh, people group. Uh, for the majority of us, being born into a people group that uh, is the oppressed and not the oppressor. The, the kingdom of Jesus uh, operates on the fringes. It operates on subverting kingdoms and subverting world powers. And those of us who have been born again into that world, uh, that resonates with us. But if you were born into America, then you were born into the very kinds of superpowers that Jesus spent his life uh, fighting against. And with his weapons of love and sacrifice and mercy, uh, he was able to overthrow the kind of kingdom we find ourselves in. Now, what happens in this case is that uh, what, I would, what I want us to do is make sure that we don't forget that when we read these stories that we could be the oppressor in those stories as well. We could be Egypt. Um, we, could be, we could be Canaan. We could, uh, if, you know, when we have a population of migrants Um, who are on the fringes of their former culture when they come to our doorstep, how would we handle them, right? This is a question where we—it's helpful for us to get in the shoes of some of the enemies of Israel rather than Israel itself. The same holds true for when Jesus tells his own stories. In many cases, the villain in Jesus' stories and his parables are the rich people, the ones who are privileged, the ones who have the power, uh, the ones who have reins over who makes decisions, And um, in our world, especially here in Silicon Valley, especially for our upper middle class vibe that we have going, we are the privileged people in the stories that America tells. Now, um, I am not saying at all that you should feel inherently guilty about this community that either you were born into or you chose to come here uh, and live your life out this way. What I'm saying is that it's helpful to hold this tension together, to not forget that if you are a follower of Jesus in this context, you are both on the fringes of society by virtue of your love of Jesus, but at the same time, you are at the center of society and the center of the future of this country by working in tech or wherever it is that, that you do by, just by the nature of being here. And I think if you can carry that forward whenever you interpret the Bible, whenever we do have stories of what one would say on the surface is good guys and bad guys, to not always immediately so quickly identify with the good guys and that story and try to think through what you may be doing that contributes to being the villain in our narratives. Now the, the villainous nature of, um, you know, the, of trying to reconcile our own identities occurs uh, in the book of Numbers itself. This, uh, the, the, even the reality that Israel can often maintain two conflicting identities at the same time is not lost on the author. There are uh, two sentences that I mentioned, right? One at the beginning of the book and one at the end. One of the things you'll notice is that those numbers, so across that generation that, uh, that spent its time in the, in the wilderness, those numbers stayed basically flat. Now, contrast this uh, or put this in the context of the promise that Israel would have in the back of their minds that God gave to Abraham, that through Abraham's descendants, that they will be blessed and multiply and the whole world will be blessed. And here they are, um, decades, uh, decades have passed, and they actually haven't grown at all. And Numbers does not shy away from explaining why it is that so many Israelites have died during this time, uh, this time period in the wilderness, and have not been able to increase their population. There, are, there were numerous rebellions, times that Israel walked away from God. And even within the census itself, if you read it in detail, you'll see uh, the author calling out some of the times where there were mass deaths in Israel because of their rebellion at that time. So even Israel itself often has to maintain this tension of they absolutely know that they, they were victims in their slavery in Egypt, and that absolutely defines who they are. But they have been villainous at times. They have contributed to the state that they find themselves in in this wilderness. That is what I wanted us to take away from being able to put ourselves into the story itself. There's a second aspect uh, uh, of where we find ourselves in the story that's also covered in in the book of Numbers, uh, especially like right after this section of the census is complete. And that has to do with passing the story on. So as soon as the census is done, there's this transition where uh, it's told from the perspective of the Lord speaking to Moses. So it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land that I've given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people. In other words, you too will die with them as your brother Aaron was for when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both uh, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. So in other words, after that census is complete, God tells Moses, go up to a mountain where you can look over and see the promised land. He does that to tell him, by the way, remember, you're not going to go there because you disobeyed me. You were arrogant. Um, You were not faithful to me. I would imagine an appropriate response to that would be one of many things. Uh, One is, after all I've done for our people, I got us here, didn't I? Or why are you rubbing it in? It's not like I forgot, like that kind of stuff. It's a lot of effort. Go all the way up to the mountain just to show me what I ultimately will not be able to obtain. And yet that's not Moses's response. His immediate response is, Moses spoke to the Lord and he said, let the Lord, the God of all living things, appoint someone over the community who will go out before them and return before them. Someone who will lead them out and bring them back so that the Lord's community won't be like sheep without their shepherd. So when God tells Moses that his time is coming to an end, he will not be able to actually be the one to bring Israel into the promised land. His response is, find someone, Lord, who can. Please find somebody who can do it. This is actually one of the earliest references in the Bible of using a sh- the shepherd metaphor as something that leaders uh, of God's people should imitate, like as a model. And that's what Moses is looking for here. And if you're familiar with how the narrative goes, Joshua is the one that God chose to succeed Moses. Um, There's, uh, you know, in in this kind of transition of power, it raises the question in the text itself, okay, so why in this case uh, would God have chosen Joshua to be the one to actually bring them over into the promised land? And uh, there's a a couple reasons for it that come out. Um, One is Uh, we'll look at some of the important references that kind of help give us a clue as to why Joshua might have been fit for this. So uh, our first uh, encounter with Joshua in the biblical narrative so far occurred back in Exodus, where um, Moses had commanded Joshua to uh, go ahead and uh, lead the charge against the Amalekites, which were a community that they had to battle on their way. And Joshua, in the way the narrative unfolds, has no trouble doing it. Uh, And then you also, uh, we talked about the um, report that Joshua, the positive report Joshua delivers from the spies. Um, Here's how he describes it when he returns. He says, don't be afraid of the people in that land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. What you realize about Joshua so far is that he is gangster in a way that Moses is certainly not. And what Israel is doing is they are transitioning from a time when God wanted to work through someone meek like Moses to a time when God's going to need an enforcer to actually go into that land and take it and fight off the oppressors, oppressors that live in that land. This is a crucial time in God's mission where the transition of power forces you to realize that the people or leaders that got you to that point may not be the best suited leaders to be the ones to take you home, to move the story forward. This is very hard for all of us to realize when we are the ones who find ourselves um, towards the end of our time in leadership. Uh, And nevertheless, God's story is actually full of beautiful moments where there could have been... It could have been highly problematic when there wasn't a successful transition of power, but the leaders that God had chosen um, were able in great stride to take this transition. One of the most famous examples comes from uh, the way King David. So this was later on in this narrative when Israel is finally able to settle into the land, conquer their enemies, receive some kind of stability. And the the way the the biblical story goes is that King David, once everything, once the kingdom is settled, he's reflecting on the fact that he sits on a throne in a nice uh, large. Uh, palace, where, where is the the home of God, that tabernacle. You know, God is uh, residing in a tabernacle, and he sets to his heart to build a temple for God. And God's response in that situation is that David will not actually be the one to be able to, put, uh, to build a temple for God. Here is how 1 Chronicles reflects on that uh, that conversation between God and King David. So here's what Um, here's how it goes. It says, you've shed, this is God saying, you've shed much blood and waged great wars. You won't build a temple for my name because you've spilled so much blood on the ground before me. A son has just been born to you. He'll be a man of peace and I'll give him peace with all his surrounding enemies. Solomon will be the one to build a temple for my name. He'll become my son and I'll become his father and I'll establish his royal throne over Israel forever. David's response to this, is amen. And he does. So he spends the rest of his life preparing for the building of the temple, and Solomon is is actually commissioned to do it. What's interesting, too, is just like in the example with, with Moses, you could think of many reasons why David would not Uh, have been pleased with this response. After all, God was the one who told him to wage those wars and spill that blood. And now God is saying, because that's your resume, you won't be the one to bring it forward. I think the, and it also uh, stands in contrast, right? Whereas it seems like uh, with the case of Moses and Joshua, the transition was God needing to move away from somebody meek and maybe more peaceful, somebody who's more warlike and enforcer. And here it seems to be the opposite is going to be true. And that's the reality of moving the story forward, is that there is a skill set that a leader may have that is good for a certain time, even asked for by God and for the for the people. But that doesn't mean that that skill set will be good all the time. This is actually, uh, to me, stands as a good um, warning, too, just against, like, a lot of, like, uh, character-driven Bible studies that we engage in where you try to, like it would be like extracting leadership principles from various Bible characters. When If you lose the context of like why these people were chosen and called out for the reasons that they were, then you extrapolate like a bunch of data that doesn't really make sense. Um, It also speaks to the reality that there is something that is inherently not ideal, in using violence to establish kingdoms that God calls out here. That whatever he is about to do, like back in the, uh, the narrative in the wilderness, whatever he's about to do with Joshua and conquering that land, God does not want it to always be that way. That's not ultimately the way he wants the world to live. His ultimate goal is one in which God's kingdom is at peace with its surrounding nations. That was the intent for what was going on with Solomon. Another beautiful example of the transition of power comes from uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, John the Baptist, we often kind of forget his resume entirely, but he was, as the gospel writers put it, literally doing all the same stuff Jesus was doing before Jesus was actually doing it. John the Baptist was preaching repentance, baptizing many people, speaking truth to the, the religious establishment of his time, performing miracles, healing the sick. He was doing all of it. He had disciples, and then Jesus enters the scene. Uh, John, uh, but John the Baptist immediately recognizes in his cousin Jesus that this power dynamic is shifting. And when uh, later on disciples will go up to John and saying like, hey, Jesus is really, uh, you know, his, his movement's really gaining traction. What do you say about that? He delivers this famous phrase where he says, he must increase and I must decrease. He recognizes the moment, and he recognizes where his leadership stands in the story of the, what God's mission uh, is all about. Now, what does that mean for us? So we, uh, those of us who work in Silicon Valley, are uh, also uh, having to think through what transition of leadership looks like. Silicon Valley, for all of its worship of youth, is getting old enough— where uh, a lot of our big corporations are experiencing or have experienced transitions of power from the people who actually created the company to that next generation who's going to take it forward. Apple is the older uh, one among this uh, the group of tech companies that we often talk about. Um, and a few years ago, they had to go through this, where the founder of the company itself, who was the leader for uh, for almost the entire time, had passed away, and there was a su- successor to him. There was this huge debate at the time about. whether Tim Cook had the kind of vision or uh, ingenuity or personality that Steve Jobs had and whether he would make a great successor. And often astute observers of that discussion would have to point out that uh, that it's important not to worship or sanctify the skills that Steve Jobs had to get to Apple where it was. Because getting Apple from nothing— to something does not necessarily require the same skill set of getting Apple from something to something even bigger. And there was an acknowledgement of that. Um, other companies like this are going through transitions like that. Google has gone through leadership transitions recently as well. When uh, Facebook uh, um, you know, became more of an established uh, global phenomenon, there were questions about whether the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, should step down and let somebody with a skill set that's better suited to actually leading uh, multinational corporations uh, step into that role. So there's all sorts of discussions about how this, uh, you know, how we need to take stock of the the different uh, skills that are necessary as a as a movement evolves. For me, actually, the, uh, one of the, my first encounters of how hard but still wise it is to approach transitions of power this way came from the movie The Godfather. So if you remember, there's a, there's a famous scene when um, the, the Corleone family, which is a, a mob family uh, in America, they, are, uh, they have been in this uh, era where there have been relative peace among other mob families in the area, but they are rapidly approaching a time in which, they anticipate, uh, much like Joshua uh, in Israel's case, being at war with these other families to solidify power. And the consigliere, the uh, counselor of the, the Corleone family, who had done so much, sacrificed so much to establish that family, was being told that he was out as their counselor, because they quote needed a wartime conciliary. That's that's the approach that they took. It was it's a, a gut wrenching scene. It's it's uh, one of the most memorable ones that came out of that movie, where you realize that. Uh, and this is family, where they're having this discussion about we lo- so love and appreciate what you've done so far, but really the time has come for you to transition, and we need the next generation to pick it up because they have the skills suited for what's next. I think one of the things that can be especially challenging with this um, this transition of power, especially across generations, is that all of us, for all of time, don't like the generation that comes after us. This is, uh, this is especially coming from a millennial who has spent his life hearing so many things about what millennials are all about, how dumb they are, how narcissistic they are, how incapable they are of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I, I hear it all the time. And I think that often there is, uh, in, in these kinds of discussions, there's this, uh, this skepticism that um, surely millennials are not capable of leading this next generation into anything other than oblivion, is, is how it often goes. The, the, this kind, these kinds of statements, I think, they, they grate against me, especially because of their historylessness. That doesn't take into account that really uh, everyone has felt this way every time forever— this challenge of letting go of authority is inherent, really, to any kind of transition. Let me give you a selection of some things our, our wise people have said over a long period of time. I'm going to share a, a few different quotes. Now, as a caveat, these, uh, these quotes have been attributed to the various people that, that I'm showing. Whether they were actually said by these precise people or not, they reflect a way of thinking that has spanned a very long period of time, and these quotes have been attributed to these people for a very long period of time. The point is that uh, it should give you this feeling of there's, there's nothing new in how we talk about things. So here is a quote that might sound very familiar to you. The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They are impatient of all restraint. They talk as if they alone knew everything, and what passes for wisdom with us is foolishness with them. As for girls, they are forward, immodest, and unwomanly in speech, behavior, and dress. That was a nice little jab thrown in there for, for women along the way. This is something that uh, has been attributed to uh, Peter the Hermit, a Catholic priest, from the 11th century, but it sounds so familiar, doesn't it? Uh, similarly, uh, there's another quote. What is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. They ignore the law. They riot in the streets inflamed with wild notions. Their morals are decaying. What is to become of them? This quotation is often attributed to Plato, 4th century BC. We're getting further back in time. We're covering a range where these kinds of thoughts were expressed uh, in that era. Another one children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect to their elders. They no longer rise when elders Enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up delicacies at the table, cross their legs, and are tyrants over their teachers. This would be uh, attributed to Socrates just a little bit before Plato. And then uh, lastly, another one is I see no hope for the future of people if they are dependent on frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly disrespectful and impatient of restraint. This one is attributed to going as way back as 8th century CE. We're actually getting close to the time period of like Joshua and Moses themselves. This is, this is kind of the span of how long these kinds of ideas have been floating around. I think that a biblical witness who's actually attuned to the idea that there's nothing new says it best uh, in making this kind of commentary. Don't long for the good old days this is not wise. That is actually said by our own biblical author, Ecclesiastes, um, who in his uh, skepticism, I think, captured this, uh, um, was able to expose this folly in uh, trying to uh, carry an inherent skepticism about what's going to happen to our future. Now, um, there are so many ways where it might be hard for us to imagine where we fit in the world of transitioning power to the next generation, particularly because many of us in this room, we're actually like demographically at the height of having like authority and resources and power and decision-making in our own jobs. I would argue that this is actually the best time then to start thinking about how we can invest in the next generation, and how we can train up leaders within our own community to be able to carry God's mission forward. I'll give you a practical piece of advice. Whenever you have a thought or are expressing a thought that begins with kids today, just pause take a moment and like, do some research to see if what you're about to say actually bears witness to how reality actually is. And I would encourage you to avoid inherent distrust of anything that comes next and also to have humility about your own role and to acknowledge, hey, it's possible that as great as the skills and gifts that I have right now are, there may come a day when other people with other gifts will be more important, and will need to be elevated. And we should ask the question, what can I do to set them up? so that when that day comes, you can respond like Moses did, or King David did, or John the Baptist did, and do what you need to do to move this story forward. How can we leverage our intergenerational nature within our community to try to make this story move forward in creative ways? I think those of us, again, who are in Silicon Valley are in this unique position where we, uh, we love uh, we love youthful ideas and we love young people and we love, um, you know, using them for their creativity. Let's, let's keep that going. How can we use that kind of creativity within the community of Jesus? These are all of these kinds of things that I want us to reflect on when we think back to when Israel was in that wilderness, counting who they were and electing their next leader. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for you taking care of us and for you being powerful and mindful and peaceful, and that no one is lost in your family, and that you are great. We are humbled by how you are always faithful, even when we are not, how you are always looking to grow us, even when we resist that growth. God bless us, put your spirit upon us, Help us to not only be great leaders in the present context that we find ourselves in, but to have the presence of mind and creativity to be able to think about where your story is headed. Help us be sensitive to where the the wind is blowing and to where the Spirit is going and to what Jesus wants us to do, not only in the 21st century, but the 22nd century and the 23rd, and for however long we work until your Son returns and makes everything whole. Thank you for for your care for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Omer.